Today's reading comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word. Job lost everything. The biblical story tells us that, that he was the greatest of all people of the East. He was a wealthy real estate mogul, a, a successful rancher, a shipping and textile tycoon, worthy of multiple Forbes magazine covers. He was all that until that day. The first messenger came to tell him that, that armed robbers had raided his lands, stealing his cattle, decimating his farms. Another messenger came right on the first one's heels to tell him that fire had fallen from the sky, consuming his sheep, ruining his textile business. Then another came to tell him that his fleet of camels, the you know, shipping industry of the ancient world, his camels had been stolen right out from under him. And then the last and worst message of all came that a fluke tornado had hit the neighborhood where his children were all having a party together. The house had collapsed in the disaster. Everyone inside was dead. In one moment, the world's richest man had become completely destitute. He had nothing to show for his life except his own health and a wife who told them that he would be better off dead. And in the biblical narrative, there's this dramatic beat in the story. What would Job do? How would he respond to utter desolation? 
Now, St. Paul, the author of our passage today in Philippians 4, he was a lot like Job. He wasn't like Job in his wealth. He was never a rich man. But he had accomplished much in his life. He, he was a respected scholar, and he'd successfully climbed the, the career ladder in his religious community. In, in fact, in Philippians 3, it tells us uh, some of his accomplishments. He lists out some of his resume from a former life. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And yet, Paul wasn't writing this letter to the Philippian church community from a, a private study in a temple or, or an ivory tower in a university. Paul was writing this letter from prison, awaiting trial and possible execution. As he closes his letter, he, he's quite possibly saying his last words to his friends. How will Paul close this letter? Will he say his farewells? Give parting instructions? Will he ask them to take care of his dog? No. No. Paul closes his letter, his last words to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Closes his letter talking about wealth, material riches. Now Paul is not a televangelist or a prosperity preacher. He's not hoping to get money from his readers. He isn't asking them to contribute to the free Paul Fund. $50 contributions, get a free t-shirt. No. Paul is using himself, as he closes this letter, as an example of what it looks like to have freedom from wealth. Paul says that he's known plenty and he's known poverty. But his external circumstances mean nothing in the end. Paul is a, a lot like Job. At this moment in his life, he has lost everything. He's rotting in prison. But he's using his circumstances to teach the church an important lesson about money. He says, whether in abundance or in want, he wants us to enjoy freedom from wealth. A freedom that comes from God in Christ by the power of his own spirit. See, Paul's orientation to wealth is fundamentally different from ours. First of all, he wants his readers to see that, that wealth, what, what wealth is in the context of the biblical story. He says that wealth is not something to aspire to or something to be jealous of. He says that, that earthly wealth is a spiritual trial. Earthly wealth is a spiritual trial. It's a test. It's a temptation. It's a trial that all of us have to endure in one way or another. Now, 
we right now living in the United States in 2020 are in the midst of an unprecedented economic crisis. In July last month, unemployment was over 10%, which was significantly lower than what it had been when it skyrocketed to almost 15% in April. Right now, over 16 million Americans are unemployed. And that includes some of you who are worshiping with us right now. We're talking about wealth in this passage at a time of dramatic wealth disparity in our nation's history. According to statistics from the Federal Reserve, the top 10% of Americans owned 77% of the, of, the, of the nation's wealth in 2016. Top one, or 10% had 77%. The bottom 50% had 1% of the nation's wealth. And in fact, 1 in 10 of that bottom 50%, 1 in 10 people actually had a negative net worth. That was in 2016. Now we're in the midst of this COVID crisis that, that, that all of us face, and it's exacerbating the problem. In fact, from March 18th to May 19th, the total net worth of the 600 or so American billionaires increased from $2.948 trillion up to $3.382 trillion. In that two-month span, just Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg saw their fortunes go up by $60 billion. Now, those are tough numbers to swallow. And there are a number of ways we could think about these things. Think back to, to Job. Job wasn't exactly the Jeff Bezos of his day, but he was definitely quite well off. If you lived in Job's town all those years ago, how would you see him? One way you might approach someone like Job is, is to covet his wealth, to covet his wealth. You might say something like, oh, if only I had that kind of money or that many camels. Oh man, the vacations that I would take, the kind of home I would buy, all of my problems would be solved. Or maybe you're an especially driven kind of individual, not content to just covet. No, you would want to get in the game. You'd want to compete to get that kind of wealth. You'd say to yourself, I can earn that kind of a living, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to do so. Whether that's ungodly hours in the, the wheat fields, livestock office politics, whether it's unjust business practices, disregard for my neighbor or my family, or the effect that my work might have on the world around me. No matter what, I will reach the top. Or maybe you know that you shouldn't compete like that. Or maybe you know that you wouldn't win if you tried to. So maybe you would join a campaign Robin Hood style. Take sheep from the rich, give to the poor. 
These textile tycoons should have less. Let's take what Job has and redistribute it. Now, what I don't want you to hear me saying is that all competitions are bad or all campaigns are bad. Not all competitions are bad and all campaigns are not either. Both may be necessary at different times for different people in different places. But if at root you covet the wealth of other people, you may be driven to see everything through an economic lens. But in our passage, Paul doesn't respond in any of these ways. His response to wealth just is on a different plane entirely. Listen again to what he says in Philippians 4, verses 12 and 13. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. See, Paul here is saying, no, 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 no. Earthly wealth should not lead you to covet. It shouldn't lead you to compete or campaign. Earthly wealth is a trial. It's a trial because earthly wealth offers false hope. Paul says all the things in this world, all the wealth we can acquire, it's all a sinking ship. I mean, after the iceberg, you don't go looking on the Titanic for the most luxurious accommodations you can find. No, you go find the lifeboat and get on it ASAP. All our approaches to wealth, whether it's coveting, campaigning, or competing, all of our approaches to wealth don't fix the root problem. The root problem isn't that you should have more or they should have less. The root problem is the brokenness and sinfulness of human beings. The root problem is human greed and selfishness. That's why Paul says what he does elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 6. It says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. So how do you fix that? You fix the issue with a, a big and powerful government, with a laissez-faire approach to economics? No. Paul approaches it this way in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now this is, is Paul's way of applying Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6. That passage may be familiar to many of us. Jesus teaches there in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, whether you have earthly wealth or don't, wealth is still a trial. It's a test. The point is not wealth. The point of money is to help you see the point. Money is there to show you what you're spiritually made of. Paul is here helping us to put Jesus' words into practice. He's helping to free us from earthly wealth. He says that freedom isn't in poverty, that wealth isn't the freedom that lets you get whatever you want. No, true freedom is in finding your treasure somewhere else entirely. So ask yourself now, do you ever worry about money? Do you ever worry about your financial future? Do you ever concern yourself with how you're going to make rent or pay the mortgage? How you're going to afford to live in a place like the Bay Area? What's your response to that worry? Is it to covet that person's home? Is it to compete in the marketplace to earn enough money? Is it to vote for campaigns to level the playing field across the board? Paul is pointing here to an entirely different approach to wealth. He points us to the freedom of heavenly treasure. The freedom of heavenly treasure. And he gives us Five principles in this passage to help us enjoy the freedom of heavenly treasure. The first thing he says is that God owns everything. God owns everything. Now, if your dad were a billionaire who had promised to to always pay your rent, feed your family, give you everything that you needed, would you ever worry about money again? But one of the most essential beliefs that Christians have in common is that God is our Father in Christ Jesus. God is our Father, and God our Father tells us this about himself in Psalm 24. He says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So, what, what, what God's revealing to us in that verse is that our dad, our heavenly father, is not just a, a billionaire. No, he's the landlord of every square inch of the universe. That's why Paul says what he does in, in verse 19. He writes there that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God is our Father, and He is good. He will supply every need of ours. And if you believe that, then you're starting on the path to freedom. The second thing Paul tells us is that what you have is not who you are. What you have is not who you are. 
I mean, have you ever been ashamed of maybe not having as nice a house or clothes or car or vacation as other people do? Paul doesn't feel any of that in our passage. I mean, if anything, he's bragging about how needy he is. Verse 11, he says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He brags about having experienced lack, about having experienced want, because he knows that's not who he is. Your earthly possessions, God's provision for you and for your family, are not eternal blessings, period. What you own doesn't define you. In fact, if you're not careful, what you own will end up owning you. He tells us that God owns everything. What you have is not who you are. Thirdly, he says that money is a hope detector test. Money is a hope detector test. See, wealth is like a lie detector that detects hope, where your hope is. Where do you really find peace, security, hope for the future? What you do with your money will tell you the answer. You notice how, how Paul talks about giving to the Philippians? He, he talks about giving generously in, in starting in verse 14. He says that it was kind of you to share my trouble, it's financial trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into financial partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, it's not about the money, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit, credit in heaven. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, I never talk that way. I just don't. As a pastor of our church, I hate asking people to give money to the church. And this challenges me because Paul has no problem with it. He's just talking about money, no big deal. He doesn't have like his waspy uh, inhibitions that I do. Because Paul is free. Paul knows that your giving is a reflection of spiritual fruit in your life. That if you trust Christ and know that verse 19 is true, then you'll give. You'll give generously. You'll give as a fruit of faith. If you don't have faith or you don't put your hope in Christ, then you don't. You, you won't give. That's why money is a hope detector. He says, fourthly, that you can do anything. Now, the last thing I want to do is, is rag on Steph Curry, especially since the Warriors are outside the NBA bubble right now. But Steph Curry writes Philippians 4.13 on all of his shoes. And the kid that gets those shoes and, and then watches Steph sink a 40-footer 
might end up taking Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Might end up thinking that he can sink 40-footers too with the right amount of faith. I mean, really, in context of this verse, talking about wealth and money, Steph should probably apply verse 13 not to shooting threes, but to saving his own soul in light of that $200 million contract. See, verse 13 is about our freedom to do anything. Our freedom from slavery to wealth. Our freedom to pursue God wherever he would lead us. That's why Kathy and I have four kids, to be honest. It didn't make a lot of sense to have children when we did. We had our first when I was in graduate school, not working. And if I look at our financial past and our financial present, from this earthly type perspective, it might be easier to get bitter about the past or to just, you know, facepalm. Because apart from our youngest, Margot, every time we've had children, we weren't sure how we would pay for them. We had to live with other people at multiple times in our lives in order to, to afford what we were doing, where we were living. But every time we've gotten pregnant in the past, every time we've worried about money, my line with Kathy has always been that God is our Father, and it's His job to take care of us. And every time, no matter what we faced, God always has provided. And I have to remember, as a father and primarily uh, primary breadwinner for my household, that at the end of the day, God is my children's father. That I have to trust that he will supply every need of theirs. Regardless of what my bank statement says or my income. Paul is teaching us here that we can do anything in faith. Because he says, fifthly, finally, that you are already rich in Christ. You're already rich in Christ. I want to read from Ephesians chapter 1, one of the most beautiful statements that Paul writes about our riches in Jesus. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. We are already rich in Christ Jesus. So brother, sister, friend, wherever you are today, be free. Be free. Be free in your heart and mind from the earthly wealth that does not last and will not satisfy. Having your treasure in heaven sets you free to suffer loss for the sake of the gospel. 
It sets you free to give to the poor and to the work of the church. It sets you free to live modestly in an expensive place so that you can be salt and light to your neighbors. It sets you free to see your career and your finances in the light of heaven. It sets you free, if God were to call you to, to take a vow of poverty. Or it sets you free to to take a vow to live below your means so that you can live generously. It sets you free to go wherever God is calling you, to do whatever he's calling you to do, even to travel as a missionary and be beaten, imprisoned, martyred, losing your own life, that you might in turn gain Christ. It sets you free to do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Having treasure in heaven sets you free to be like Job. In the face of losing everything, watching your life's work be decimated by tragedy, you'll be set free to respond like Job did. In Job chapter 1, verse 21, where he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. My prayer for you today is that you would have the freedom of heavenly treasure. That you would enjoy freedom from earthly wealth. Not following market forces, not following consumer desires, not following earthly fears. My prayer for you today is that you would enjoy the freedom from wealth that the gospel gives to make Christ and Christ alone your treasure. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you for the riches you've lavished upon us in Christ Jesus. We praise you for providing freedom in his name, and his finished work at the cross and in the resurrection, that we are now free to store up treasures not on earth, but in heaven, to live, to work for something that lasts far longer than our, our earthly lifespan. Father, you have made us free. And I pray, Lord God, that by the power of your Spirit upon us, we would do all things through Christ who strengthens us, that we would go and and, and lead and serve and give and love to the uttermost, not worrying about ourselves or our future, but knowing that our future is secure because you hold us in your hands, that you will supply every need of ours according to your riches in Christ. Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father God, that you have already made us rich. And give us the faith to believe that that is true and the hope into the future to love with abandon, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.